Lake Effect brings you conversations about what's happening in Milwaukee and the people, places, and organizations that shape the community. This is Lake Effect Spotlight from WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Neil deGrasse Tyson has many titles, but he's probably best known as your personal astrophysicist. You may have seen him as a guest on various news or late-night TV shows, explaining the science we come across in daily life. Tyson is also an author, podcast host, and heads the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. But no matter the role he takes on from day to day, they all share one thing in common— popularizing science by making it accessible and exciting. One of the ways he's doing this in Milwaukee is with his upcoming lecture called An Astrophysicist Goes to the Movies, the sequel. Ahead of that, he joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome to Lake Effect. It's an honor to speak with you today. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I like the name Lake Effect. Is that, does that refer to the source of moisture that creates snow in the winter? Yes, and right in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we're right by Lake Michigan here, so we thought it was an appropriate name. <laughs> there it is. I love it. I love the meteorological uh, innuendo there, so it's good. Yeah. Well, and of course, while I have you, and speaking of all things science, I want to start off with the concept of scientific literacy. What is it, and how do you think we can foster this not only in young children, but as adults as well? Yeah, I uh, contrary to what many people think of me, I generally focus on adults rather than on children. Children are born curious. They're scientists, basically, uh, minus the laws of physics and nature that they have yet to learn. They are as inquisitive as any adult scientist is about the natural world. So I, I, I don't actually worry about them. I worry about the adults who are teaching them <laughs> later on. And I worry about what happens when you emerge uh, into the ranks of what we would call educated uh, citizens of the world. What happens is upon graduation, people ossify in whatever, but no matter what point you graduate, is it high school or is it college or graduate school? Typically, people ossify right at the point when they graduated. And they, uh, I've stereotyped this, but imagine people run down the steps, toss their books in the air and said, school's out. You know, there's even an Alice Cooper song that anthemically <laughs> celebrates, you know, school's out for summer, school's out forever. And it's like, really, you, you're, you're glad there's no more school? So that means there's a failure in the educational system to make it such that you are glad when you no longer have to learn. And I, so that's a first, let's just start there. More specifically about science, we're taught just what science knows in our classes you get this fat textbook and and you got to memorize the boldface words that's the vocabulary and you, and you take the test and then you move on and at no time are we really taught what science is or how and why it works that's what's missing is that the start of the disconnect so you know school's out and then as adults there's you know i guess maybe only a matter of time but before that failure and disconnect starts where we seem to forever be facing especially in the past few years with the pandemic where people don't agree what is science when how it works what's an objective truth what does it mean to be convinced of something you know do you think this is where the failure starts is when we think oh we don't yes. need this knowledge anymore let me carry on well not only do you, do they think they don't need it but when they did learn the science, they didn't learn science the way science is actually practiced. 
which is on the frontier. It's a messy, bloody, well, not bloody, but it's it's a messy, confused frontier because you don't know what's going to come down the pipe. And so if someone does some research and they get a result, somebody else doesn't, and the press runs to it, by the way, someone else gets another result that's different and they report on that. And then the public thinks that the scientists don't know what we're doing when they're being exposed to the, the very frontier where objective truths are being sifted and established. And so if the CDC gives, holding aside political issues or or communication challenges that they had, uh, if the CDC announces something based on research one month, and then they announce something different or improved or slightly altered, you can't say, well, I don't know what to believe then. You know, you the, because that if you say that, it means you don't know how science works. Science is an ever-progressing approach towards an objective truth, which when you get multiple studies that agree, and I'm not talking about opinions here, I'm talking about results of data and observations and experiment. When they agree, then we say, we got a new truth. Put it in the books and let's keep moving forward. And in the era of experimental science, that's how we built civilization to deal with it. And don't tell me I don't trust science. Oh, wait a minute. I got a call on my smartphone from someone 4,000 miles away. Oh, and let me find out what the shortest distance is to grandma's house in traffic on my smartphone. Oh, but I don't trust science. Really? Really? So speaking of... I'm to get all excited about that, but that's my answer. No, it's, it's a good thing to get excited about. And a lot of things have influenced you in your life before you became known as, you know, our personal astrophysicist. And one big component of that was studying under Carl Sagan. And he was a professor of astronomy at Cornell when you first met him. And one of your many takeaways from learning from Carl was, quote, if I'm ever as remotely as famous as Carl Sagan, I'll treat the next generation of scientists the way he has treated me. So can you share some of those tenets you've developed over your career based on this promise you made to yourself? Yeah. So uh, Carl Sagan was not a mentor to me in the traditional sense we might think of that word. It's possible to mentor someone even if you never interact with them, just by example. All right. And in Carl Sagan, I, by the way, just to be clear, I was probably in his presence maybe six times in my life. Okay. So it's mostly just the impact someone can have when there's this sort of resonance between your goals and the wisdom that they share with you. And so he spent time with me when I was 17 years old. He didn't know me from anything. I'd applied to Cornell, had not decided whether I would attend. And the admissions office sent him my application, which was dripping with the universe. And they said, maybe this is somebody. He, he invited me up. And I went there. I said, my gosh, how do you do what? What? And he, he handed me a book that he wrote and signed it. And drove me and, and drove me at the end of the day, drove me back to the bus station is upstate New York, began to snow. This was in December. And he said, you know, if it's if the bus can't get through, this here's my home number. Call me, spend the night with my family, leave tomorrow. I was like, what? And I said, Oh my gosh, he's investing in the future in me. So I kind of like I said, if I'm ever that famous, I remember thinking this at the time. I will give attention to the next generation of students who want to do what I'm doing, I will give them the attention above all else. So I, I joke about this. I'd be on the on the phone and a student knocks on the door of my office. I say, Barack, I got to get back to you. I got a student. <laughs> I'll call you later. I got students I got to deal with here. So it, it's infused almost every aspect of my uh, pedagogical 
hat wearing. When I separate from being a scientist, I count myself among the ranks of educators, and that's in my portfolio for sure. Do you consider being an educator as one of your key priorities? Would you say if this all went away, public speaking, being the people's astrophysicist, would teaching still be plenty to fulfill you? Well, so no, it's I, I'm a little more complicated than that. If I had my choice, I would actually just stay in the lab and you would never know I even existed. And in fact, I look forward to the day where other people, many more people, a lot are there now, uh, join this landscape of science education. If you look on social media, there are many people who have entire YouTube channels give, and, and Instagram streams devoted to doing cool science things at home, uh, learning about science. So there's a swell in the ranks of those who are active in, in these efforts. So I, what I want to do is have that be large enough so that I can tiptoe backwards, exit the back door, go to the Bahamas, and you won't even know I left. <laughs> and so I'm happy to have done my contributed the bit that I have, but it can't just be all needle all the time. Then my efforts will have failed if people learning science requires that I be a part of that equation. Then I, I then I didn't it didn't work. And just the way Carl tried to make sure he didn't have to be part of that equation. All right. If you provided you pass the torch and keep it going. So no, and I don't need to be remembered for any of that. Just just keep moving forward. It's not about me. It's about you. So let's say you had to move out of the sciences and being in the lab wasn't an option and you had to pick a job in the humanities. What field would you choose and why? Oh, yeah. I, I, thanks for that question. Uh, does it matter if I have talent in that? <laughs> no. Let's just say a dream job that's okay, not okay, related, whatever. Yeah. Thanks for that. For that. <laughs> um, I think I would be a songwriter for Broadway musicals. That's what I, I love. love that. I, I love musicals. Uh, even the corny ones, you know, uh, two people meet each other and they fall in love and they, there's a moment where they can no longer express it in words, so they have to sing a song. I remember as a kid saying, that's stupid. If you just feel that way, why sing a song? Why are you wasting my time? I remember it as a kid, but then I realized, oh my gosh, a song reaches deeper into our state of emotion and our into our feelings. It's, songs go beyond words in ways that affect us viscerally. And so as I became more and more facile with the language, with words, with, with communication, really, I said to myself, I want to participate in that exercise. And I want to write the simple song that uh, conveys not only ideas, but emotions and advances the plot. And so, yeah, so that would, that's what I would be. I love that answer. One more question for you in the time I have. Speaking of visceral memories, do you have a favorite stargazing memory or any other kind of related scientific memory? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So in the old days, because that's how old I am, we would go on pilgrimages to mountaintops to the telescopes, okay? The theorists would stay at home on their computers. I was a little bit of both. So I would go to mountaintops and they're far away. I went to mountains in the Andes Mountains of Chile for my PhD thesis. And you're there and you and you takes a day or two, do you convert and you live nocturnally? So your day is the night. Your day begins at sunset. All right. And I'm there and I'd be listening to music, uh, typically some bombastic classical bit. And uh, as the morning draws near, that you, it's a full night of observing and data gathering, 
I would time it so that like the final chords of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony would be playing as the dome uh, slip closed. And, would go, and then I'd walk out and I'd see dawn. Those are, those are, you can't, you can't, you have to feel that and experience it to real. It's almost a spiritual encounter with the cosmos when you have that. So the music, the data, the science, the sky, the mountaintop, it's all there. Yeah. Wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I'm coming to Milwaukee. I'm going to be there. Yes, I'm looking, looking forward to that. Talking about movies. I love movies and talking about science in the movies. The science they get right and also the science they get wrong. I'm going to call that out. <laughs> and not just movies that are science fiction. It's all. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. In fact, most of the movies are, are not science fiction movies. Uh, talk about uh, The Wizard of Oz, talk about A Bug's Life. Uh, there's some interesting films in there that you never knew had some science. And that's what I'm for to show you. <laughs> Show you how that went down. Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to having you. Thanks for having me, then. Neil deGrasse Tyson is an astrophysicist, author, podcast host, and head of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. He'll be at the Pabst in Milwaukee on February 24th for his all-new lecture called An Astrophysicist Goes to the Movies, the sequel. Tyson spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski. You can find more interviews like this one by visiting wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. And while you're there, subscribe to the Lake Effect Spotlight Podcast. <laughs>